Good morning. My name is Matt Crick. No, Matt is uh, flying back from Michigan. He did a wedding for an old friend of his yesterday. And so he asked me if I would uh, look at the passage this morning that he had lined out and um, bring a teaching for you guys, which I enjoy doing from time to time, as some of you know. My name is actually Dave Robinson. Uh, So it's good to be sharing with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question in a second, but first let's um, stop and just feel the silence, feel your own presence, the presence of those around you. Give yourself permission to fully arrive. Thank you, God, for this particular moment in our journey. Thank you for the straight paths that brought us here and for the crooked paths that brought us here and for the surprises and for the predictability and the whole gamut of life that has resulted in all of us being in this room right here right now. Thank you for your scriptures that you have preserved all these thousands of years and how amazing they are. And I pray that we could pull something out today that would be worth keeping. And I ask you to uh, guide my words if I say anything that's unhelpful or stupid or off, that it would just die and blow away. And that if I say something helpful and good and wholesome, that you would amplify it with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Amen. So think about the word authority. When I say authority, you, you, uh, what comes to your mind? Anybody? What is it? The police. What else? Finger pointing. You're pointing at me. What is it? Cat's boss. What is it? Law. Abuse. Okay. Wow. Thank you for that. Uh, Authority, okay. Now take the itty off the end of it, leaving the base word, author. I say author, what comes to mind? Writing. What is it? Stories. Stories. Creator. Different set of thoughts. Very different set of thoughts. Just want to point that out. Some synonyms for the word authority. You ready for this? Now, you, you shared what just came to mind when I said authority. Here's some synonyms. Synonyms for authority. Ace. Adept. Artist. Connoisseur. Crackerjack. Expert. Geek. Guru. Hotshot. Maestro, master, maven, scholar, shark, virtuoso, whiz, wizard. Is that interesting? What you author, which is a way of saying what you create, what you cause, what you genuinely contribute from your uniqueness, that fits that list. That's your authority. That's your authoredness. 
your unique flavor at its best, you're an authority in that because it's you. Now, the word has come to mean other things, but look at what we've lost in the word. It's just, just interesting. So the passage today that we're going to look at has to do with Jesus' authority being questioned by the religious leaders, which if you've ever read like almost any of the Bible or the New Testament, you know this happens a lot because he stirs up trouble among the religious institutions, which is why he became so famous. First, we're going to stop and look a little bit about Jesus and authority. Then we're going to go to our passage. Uh, you can just listen or you can turn to it if you want. I'm going to start with Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat and he went over to the other side of the lake and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a man who could not walk. He was lying on a mat. Jesus saw that they had faith, so he said to the man, Don't lose hope, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the teachers of the law, law, authority, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is saying a very evil thing. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he said, why do you have evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Remember, this guy couldn't walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, he spoke to the man who could not walk. Get up, he said, take up your mat and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with wonder, understandable. They praised God for giving that kind of authority to a human being. So Jesus' authority, his unique expertise, was something beyond the usual, such that he could go to somebody who could not walk and say, get up and walk, and the guy did. But these particular people in this particular culture were amazed just as much that he said, your sins are forgiven. Because that would not be something that a human being would have authority. How could I forgive someone else's sins? That's something between them and God, right? So they were amazed at that. So you start to see the kind of authority he's coming from. So far, it has little to do with being in charge and more to do with an inner mastery. Over in Matthew 10, verse 1 in Matthew 10, it says, Jesus called for his 12 disciples to come to him. He gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every illness and sickness. So now we find out that Jesus' authority is generously shared. Now think about the words that first came to your mind. When I say authority, you, you think about those things. Would you associate generous sharing with what usually comes to mind with authority? Not that it would necessarily be in conflict, but it wouldn't easily associate. When someone has authority in the positional sense that maybe they have 
made a goal. They've tried to take on authority. They've wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be a boss. They wanted to be the president. They wanted to be in this positional authority. And they get there, and it's pretty common to see kind of a grasping of it, hanging on to it. If something threatens the authority, they exert the authority and lord it over, maybe, sometimes. Sound familiar? Sound? Okay. So here's Jesus with a kind of authority that can say, I forgive sins, and then prove that he's on that level by saying, get up and walk to somebody who can't walk, and he does. So he's showing, he's coming from a kind of authority that's qualitatively different than the usual. Then he takes it a step further and he shares it. Those who are following him, he gives it to them. You go do stuff like that. It doesn't have to be me. Interesting. In Matthew 28, very famous passage, verses 16 through 20. This might distract a little bit because it's a rich passage, and we're not, we're not looking at this one specifically today, but I really wanted to read it because of what it says. Uh, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Now, earlier it said 12. There's a story there if you know we've lost Judas. Uh, so there's 11 now. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. They went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, this is after Jesus has been killed. So now his authority, even over death, is, you know, it's just off the scale. He's not possible to figure out, right? It says, when they saw him, he said, quote, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you must go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And you can be sure that I am always with you to the very end. So that in the previous Matthew 10 passage, when he shares the authority and says, you guys go do what I do, he then opens it up completely. And we won't get into all the passages, but in the context here, he has opened it up at the end of a couple of the Gospels, certainly here in Matthew, such that those in the future who follow the disciples, that the authority continues to be passed on. And he says, I will be with you always. One of the great Christian riddles, Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the very end. And then he leaves. Now, it's not quite that simple, but there's a riddle there, I think, because I think he's telling the absolute truth. And I think he really left but not left-left. There's this presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus taught us that when the Spirit comes, he will do nothing on his own, but only what he experiences, what he sees from Jesus. Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but only what I see the Father doing. So we have this God authority attempting to filter into humanity generously and giving, basically, Anybody who wants to get on board, the kind of authority that results in being an ace, an adept, an artist, a connoisseur, a crackerjack, an expert, a geek, a guru, a hotshot, a maestro, a master, a maven, a scholar, a shark, a virtuoso, a whiz, and a wizard. Now, those aren't my words. That's actually Merriam-Webster. But uh, it starts to be attractive. Yeah, I want authority 
that can go from the inside and come out as something amazing. And I want to know people like that, that something amazing is coming out of them. Because we all love cool people, right? We want to be one, we want to be around them. And that's kind of what this is talking about. Jesus is like, follow me and become the coolest person that you could possibly be. So now let's get to today's passage. Have any of you ever heard of a religious leader, of all things, a religious leader who was messed up? Anyone ever heard of one? It's kind of a weird animal. How do you get to be a religious leader and not understand someone like Jesus? It's like taking, missing the point to just new heights. A religious leader and clueless as to the power of real spiritual identity and connection to God. And I don't know how that animal came into being, but it has proliferated. So today's passage is Matthew 21, 23 through 27. The tricky thing, as I was studying this, the tricky thing about this passage is the good part is in Matt's message last week and the ones coming in a few weeks. He's, he gave me this little in-between, this hallway between the rooms, right? But I started digging, and it's actually really cool. So here's the passage. Jesus entered the temple courts. Okay, wait, before we go. Remember last week? Matt was talking about, he, was, he sat here on a stool because he was sick all week. And talked about Jesus coming into the temple, turning over the tables. Remember that? Upset people, upset the religious leaders. This drama happened around him. Okay, then he goes out, he spends the night with his disciples. They're hiking back toward the temple, and there's a fig tree, and it says Jesus is hungry, and he goes to the fig tree, and there's no figs. So he curses the fig tree, and it withers. Very dramatic, very strange. It was not the season for figs. No fig tree would have had any. So it's very, very strange. So this is right after that. In the context, it's what we call, in hindsight, Holy Week. It's Jesus has gone to, the, to Jerusalem. He rode in on a donkey. Kids and the crowds were cheering for him. They just loved this guy. And the people in the institution, of the religious institution, hated this guy because he manifested this authority that they couldn't dream, couldn't hope to manifest. And so they were threatened. So, in that context, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. If you answer me, then I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? And they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. The religious leaders 
the top echelons in the culture, the ones who ran the temple that had sat there for centuries, handed down this through scribes and through law and tradition, the cream of the crop, the, the leaders, the elders who know stuff, right? John's baptism, was it from God or of human origin? We don't know. So they had kind of a lose-lose moment. Uh, they had three, three possibilities, basically. When Jesus threw that question at them, they could say John was of God and risk their reputation in the eyes of each other since they didn't believe in or follow John. Or they could say John was not of God, still hanging with each other, but they would risk their reputation in the eyes of the people since the people believed John was of God. Or they could claim ignorance, still risking their reputation with the people. How could the religious leaders not know? So you can see that they're angry because they've taken the best option they could. And then Jesus responds with, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. There was a tradition among these priests dating back a very long time that when the Messiah comes, he will have authority over the temple and over all those who have authority in the temple. That was their belief. So Jesus comes in. They are in the worst imaginable situation for themselves. Jesus is doing these things as if he owns the place, just without asking permission, without announcing it first. He's just behaving as if it's his. And the people in general love it. They feel like we've come home. This is, this is, we love this guy. He's doing what, maybe kind of what they're thinking a lot. I don't know. But what a tragedy. I want to take a little turn here to where I think we don't usually go in a passage like this. I'm going to turn toward those religious leaders as fellow human beings and look at the sadness of the situation they're in. If you have ever experienced being so caught up in having to be right, and it's complicated by the fact that you know you are, and you're in that mindset, and you're right, and you know you're right, and your relationships start to detach, and you don't know why, but you find that I am right about this, and something happens and you find yourself isolated or headed toward isolation because you're among people who think that you're wrong. And you can't just let that happen. So I see these guys as kind of like that. Now, I think that's common and familiar. I have been there. And they had an opportunity, just like anybody else in the crowd, to risk the possibility that maybe this was the Messiah. They didn't have to draw a conclusion. They could just risk the possibility. Just examine it. Just let Jesus' authority manifest and see what happens. Just don't block it. All he's doing is blessing people, and making kids happy, 
And you know what I mean? Even in the passage where he says, go on to the world and teach to them to do everything I commanded you. Well, what did he command? Love each other as I have loved you. Be all you can be, you know? It, it's, his message is wonderful. So why would they resist? Well, because of their false authority. I'm just going to call it false. They're in a position of authority, but they can't, man, they can't say to a guy who can't walk, get up and walk. Nor would they try, because they know they can't. They would risk their reputation. Reputation management, I think, sometimes would be the death of us all. How I am coming off needs to be managed and controlled so that you approve of me, so that you like me, so that you whatever. And it's all silly. And we know it's silly, but we get stuck in this place. So think about these guys. Their claim of ignorance reveals their manipulative trickery. Here they shot themselves in the foot. Answering truthfully would have meant that they themselves were speaking with a kind of authority. Ponder that for just a second. Had they answered truthfully, they themselves would be beginning to speak with authority. The very thing they were trying to hang on to. So follow me through this thought, if you will. Their own authorness. We're so into thinking of authority as being in charge. But the origin, the root, the, the deeper meaning is authorness. It's that which you say, write, create, speak, build, do, make. If they responded from truth, Jesus would have likely responded with his own authority, meeting them on truthful terms. When they said, we don't know, they chose to speak untruthfully, using their words to manipulate rather than communicate. Now, maybe they didn't know, but why would they say, we don't know? I only see one possibility, and I don't have time to explain maybe why, but I think underneath the reputation management, Underneath this cohort of priests that they were, down in the individual, down in the heart, I think maybe they strongly suspected that John's baptism was of God and that John had basically announced Jesus as the Messiah, almost in those terms. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, indicating prophecies from back in the days of the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah. And so to, to believe in John was to give Jesus a place. Like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna let you see if you can fill such shoes. Do you feel any mercy or grace toward these religious leaders? Or let me add, people of that sort? I find it kind of difficult. I do, I can. If I stop and think about it, and I realize, yeah, fellow human being, messed up, there's a story there, there's reasons they're feeling what they're feeling, okay, I can get there. But my initial response is very competitive. I look at Jesus when he said, when the way he reacted to this conversation, and I, the competitor in me loves it. I'm like, he slam dunked, he smacked down these guys. 
It's like they come up like, by what authority do you do these things? And, ah, tell you what, I'll ask you a question. John's baptism, and he throws out the hottest, most controversial thing of the moment, makes them face it right in front of everybody. They claim ignorance. He's like, okay, just follow in suit here. I'm not telling you either. And I see it as a competition where they come up like this, and he's like, bam! Now, I really don't think that's what happened, but it can be read that way. And the shallower part of me wants to read it that way because he really gets them good, right? The deeper part of me starts to feel mercy like, Jesus hates this stuff. He's here for everybody. We know because of other passages of scriptures where some of these same guys came to him individually with real questions. He met them with grace and with honesty and exactly like he would meet anybody. He just wasn't going to play these fake authority games. So now I'm going to speculate and ask you to engage your imaginations with me. Imagine if the conversation went differently. Imagine that there was one priest who decided to be honest. Now Jesus said, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. John's baptism, was it of divine origins or just something from human beings. Now imagine a priest, one of those guys, saying this in response to Jesus. Well, if I say from God, then you'll probably ask me why I don't believe, why I didn't believe John. But if I say from men, then I have to face my fear of all these people. They all believe John was a prophet, and if I disrespect John, then I'm afraid of how all these people might view me. I want to continue to enjoy my position here in the temple, and I need the people to see me as having authority. I can't afford to let my guard down and tell the truth. I feel divided inside. I actually do think that John's baptism might have been from God, but my fellow priests don't think so. And I'm afraid to disagree with them and possibly lose my position. When the Messiah comes, he will have more authority than the priests. If you're not the Messiah, you've still managed to reveal the lies inside me. Those lies make my priesthood a mockery. If you are the Messiah, God help me. So I'm just imagining that. But how do you suppose the Jesus that we learn from in Scripture and know would respond to that? Any of us, any time we want to, can do that. Now, not, now, nobody says, I've arrived and I'm perfect. This is the complete version of myself. No one says that. If they do, then you know they're like nowhere near there. Therefore, we're all still in the oven, and there's still some making of us to do. In that process, there's a need to be honest with God because God's the one that put us in the oven. He's the one that put our ingredients together and is making us. If I may, I want to tell you a little story for myself from my early 20s, which I hate to tell stories from my early 20s because they're all embarrassing, but it just so fits. So I had a girlfriend and we were really into like behaving ourselves. We were both Christians and, you know, saving ourselves kind of thing. 
But I had another friend who was a girl who had much lower standards. And I'm in my car one day, driving to the other girl's place, arguing with myself. And I'm kind of praying because I was kind of divided and tormented inside. I knew I was giving in to going somewhere where I had no business. I was making a destructive choice, okay? And I started this dialogue with God. And I said, I really don't want to do this. I really need you to make me strong. And I was on that channel. I need you to help me. Nothing. It was like utter absence. It was like if there was any sense of God's presence, all it was saying was, I don't hear you. And I kept, and I just prayed all the more. And I actually pulled over on the side of the road in Daly City. I remember the moment because it changed my life. And I was praying, and I noticed, you know how you do things, but you're kind of watching what you're doing at the same time. And I noticed, like, well, I stopped, and I'm praying. Okay, this is probably, I'm probably moving in the right direction here. And I don't know, I guess God just did it to me or something, because I had this insight. It's like, why don't I tell God the truth? I mean, the actual truth. I'm completely lying when I say, I don't want to do this. Of course I want to do it. Grappling with my own temptation, I'm giving in. If I didn't want to do it, that wouldn't have been happening. This is like really basic stuff. So I'm like, can I pray that way? And I didn't know that you could. I had always thought I need to clean up my thoughts and make them kind of religified so that I can then pray. Give God the version of my good self. And he would not respond. And so I thought, I'm going to do a little experiment. And I started openly telling God what I wanted in all of its darkness. And I admitted, I am a hypocrite and a jerk because of how I'm treating the people in my life and how I'm treating my own self. And I get rewards from that. And I told him about that. And I won't go into it all. You can kind of see where I'm going. I just started to say, God, I want to do this. Here's why. And I was just honest. And it was like the presence of God came in. He's like, I can work with that. And I suddenly could feel him. Like, he's like, this is a real conversation. Now you're telling me the truth. And I didn't repent particularly, the way, at least the way I understood it. I did eventually turn my car around. But I tell you, that wasn't the big breakthrough, although that was a smart choice. The, the big breakthrough was I don't have to clean up my thoughts for God ever. I can give him the raw, unedited, utterly unfiltered thoughts inside me, no matter what they are. And that's actually the conversation he wants to have. So I thought about that, and I thought about these priests. So think about what you need to say to God right now. And it might be hard. The tendency to clean up our thoughts is, it happens like in a millisecond. But if you think, if you have any tendency to clean up your thoughts, back up, because that indicates that there's a need to clean them up. So all of us are like the children and the crowd cheering for Jesus and we're kind, of, we're kind of a mixed bag. 
we are also like these religious leaders who think we have it together, and we have moments where we're managing our reputation sort of above all. So I just ask you to take just a moment. What can I tell God that takes, that opens up a new level of honesty? Without committing to anything, it doesn't have to be, I'll be better, or I just, he would rather have you be bad and be real than be good and not connected to him. So let's go there and be thinking about that as we, you know, the generous authority of Jesus when he was with his disciples, when these guys actually did, a few days from the scene we just looked at, they got their way and they shushed him. And that image we've carried for 2,000 years of Jesus nailed to a cross, to a Roman, you know, execution cross, uh, that's what they were able to do with these guys. And it really wasn't the Romans. They're just doing what they do. It was these religious leaders that were the mind behind all that, trying to get this guy silenced. And there's more to the story, obviously. But in the moment before that cross, when we share the bread and the cup here, was the most generous sharing of his authority. He says, this is my body. Now, it's not, this is my body. This was his body. We use the term the body of Christ, referring to his people. But the body of Christ in that moment was one individual. And that's it. So Jesus said, this is my body, okay? My one individual, Messiah. Still one loaf. He broke it, passed it out, said, eat this. And he shared his authority. His Messiah-ness. He says, this is... I'm staying in the picture. I'm leading this, and I'm not going anywhere. And you will be my hands, my feet. I give you the mind of Christ. I give you the authority of Christ. I give you all of that stuff. Without waiting until we're perfected or finished or out of the oven. In the middle of our mixed bag, he just shares it. So enter into a super honest conversation with God. And let's go to communion. And think of it as Jesus sharing his authority, his unique creativity, his expertise, and bring those thoughts to the table.